Assume nothing. Question everything and start thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast, hosted by Seth Andrews. An atheist and a mysticist walk into a bar. Sounds like the setup of a joke, right? Where's the punchline or where's this story going to go? Well, it's not a joke. It's actually going to happen. Today is not a bar. It's a podcast. But my special guest, Andrew Jasko, is a self-described mysticist. And he counsels people who are coming out of fundamental faiths like Christianity with hell theology and original sin dogma and all the damage that those teachings so often do to people. And in that way, he and I really line up. We're very concerned about how fundy faiths are screwing up the world and really harming people. And for that reason, I think the first 10, 15 minutes of this interview today, conversation today, is going to really be about our shared mission to try to help rescue people, to tell them, you don't have to believe this crap it's harmful and it's stupid and you don't need it. And and he and I are very much on the same team. We're allies in that way. And I'm so thankful for that. And then I want to get into mysticism. Now, this is where he and I diverge, obviously, but I'm curious about it. You know, he is, I think this is fair to say, I'm not putting words in his mouth when I say that he is a mysticist who believes that consciousness might be able to leave the physical body and connect in meaningful ways with life, the universe, and everything. Sometimes this can be aided through chemicals, you know, drugs, psychedelics, or whatever. And and a lot of this stuff, I think, from his perspective, exists at least now beyond science. Yet that fact does not mean that spiritual experiences do not exist. Okay, this is a huge sandbox. I would like to explore it. And so two people in good faith are going to explore hot button issues. And we're going to do so without raised voices and without contention. We're going to do it as friends and allies, I think really as humanists. And won't that be refreshing in this constantly shouting, nasty, divided world? As we're talking about the mind, and because I wanted 2023 to be a continuing of my own education, I got into Dr. Sam Wang's Wondrium series. He is a neuroscientist at Princeton, and he has the Wondrium lecture called The Neuroscience of Everyday Life, Our Evolved Brains Processing Our World, Neurons Talking to Each Other, What Changes, How These Neurons Talk to Each Other. Is it true that we only use 10% of our brains? Does classical music really make our babies get smarter? That's a myth, by the way. It's not true, which was fascinating to me. Wondrium, 
has thousands of hours of audio and video content just like this. Courses, documentaries, totally ad-free on any device. Learn and enjoy learning from vetted professors and experts who know their stuff. I want to challenge you. Learn something new this year with Wondrium. And to ring in 2023, Wondrium is offering my listeners a 23-day free trial. But it's only available if you sign up via my special URL. Go to wondrium.com slash Seth. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Seth. Wondrium.com slash Seth. I was a featured speaker at an event in 2022. I had kind of a controversial moment. I gave a, a speech that went hard at Christianity as a, a blood cult. And uh, the response was mixed. <laughs> but I'll tell you more than that. This was an event that was not an atheist conference, a free thought conference, etc. It was kind of a meeting of minds, a cross-cultural thing where we saw people from all walks of life and all perspectives coming together to talk about death, grief, and belief. And it included, would I call you a, a spiritualist? I've got Andrew Jasko, who is someone that I met at the event, and we became friends, had dinner together. It was an, an amazing time. But how would I introduce you, man? Yeah, you know, I get called a lot of things. So you can call me a spiritualist or a mystic or, or something like a striving to integrate humanism and mysticism. And so I work with like psychedelics and meditation and I'm interested in things of that nature, but also am a very heavy handed, some might say, critic of fundamentalist Christianity. So I really enjoyed the blood cult stuff. And I think we can we can take that up a notch, too. Well, I noticed you didn't walk out. I always think that's nice. You know, if I do a speech <laughs> and people don't leave, that's, you know, that's a good sign. I, I well, take I th- that. Well, as I a think it's a good sign when people do walk out, actually. You know, you should sort of count those as like, <laughs> you remember the altar call numbers? You know, it's sort of <laughs> the same thing. All right. Well, I'm just going to play my cards up front. Now, I don't do debate shows. I'm a conversationalist and storyteller. There are plenty of debate shows out there where you see two people go head to head. You need to meet the burden of proof, damn it. And someone else comes back with their counter or, or counter apologetic or whatever. And, and when you say things like mysticism, I'll just tell you up front, there are people, a lot of people in this audience already rolling their eyes. Holy shit, it's going to be a woo fest. And um, I would not be doing my due diligence as a host if occasionally I don't kind of poke back at that <laughs> and try yeah. to go a little deeper. Is that fair? I mean, totally. Uh, and, okay. and I get it. Like, I resonate with your audience. In fact, a part of me sits in the background of my personality and mocks me a little bit. <laughs> I, what I'm saying is, I relate to that because I have been a skeptic as well. And I was really annoyed and triggered by people such as myself, you know, I just found that working with psychedelics and meditation and other things to be really, really healing and transformational and change my thinking. Uh, But I'm not really, you know, that interested in 
and debating. I mean, not to say it's not a valuable thing, but, you know, people can dissect me and criticize me and have fun on that. But I figure it would also be fun to just dive into the fundamentalism stuff. Yeah. Well, I hope nothing I say comes off as making fun. I'm not here to make fun of you. I always have that line that, you know, whenever possible, people get respect, but ideas have to earn it. It's like Christianity. I, you know, I really go after the dogma and the scriptures and the culture sometimes, especially the more dogmatic, fundy culture. But I also am, my life is populated with Christians who are lovely people. And a lot of folks have a hard time understanding how I reconcile those two. They think it's hypocritical. But I mean, you see that difference between going after the person and challenging the ideas. That's fair, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And Seth, I really appreciate the way that you approach that. I, I've seen you talk with people and, and, you know, really attempt to bring in a lot of compassion and empathy and understanding. But like I've been out there in the online space and, you know, people can pick me apart or, or whatever and have fun with it. I, I don't really mind that much. But I, like I said, this whole mysticism kind of stuff, like I also dissect a lot of people in this space too. And like I find a lot of the same stuff going on in, in all kinds of spaces as well. Well, where does the fire in your belly about fundamentalism come from? Were you a former Christian or have you seen yeah. abuse in the faith? What's so I was a minister. And what kind I, of minister? I was a Pentecostal Assemblies of God minister and also a Presbyterian minister. So my father is a Pentecostal Assemblies of God minister, and I was raised in that church uh, right after I was born. I was taken directly from the hospital to the church altar to be devoted to service to God. So that church is now like a thousand members strong. And I just, you know, I did the whole nine yards of going to church constantly, being extremely fundamentalist, felt called to be a missionary to India, went there on several trips, got a Master of Divinity at Princeton Seminary, and uh, did the whole thing before it all came crashing down. Princeton? Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm sure that was on a business card and a resume. And, you know, I'd be, yeah, I'm just saying if I was in the faith, I'd be leading with that foot. I'm just, well, I'm just you know saying, what, yeah. though? They're, 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 uh, to a lot of people, they're liberal, even though they're not. They're, they're more like they kind of welcome everyone, but, you know, so that might be something to hold against oh, me. I see. I see. Yeah. yeah. Y'all are watered down. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Y'all are watered down. Worse. You know, we're the ones that Jesus spits out of his mouth. I don't think at Princeton they use the word y'all, but I'm just going to throw it out just because I'm, <laughs> I'm an Oklahoman. Well, there's some Southerners there. But that's a weird segue because the Pentecostal church is an extremely experiential high energy, high emotion thing into you pinball over here to the Presbyterians. How's that happen? Well, so while I was at seminary, I had a crisis. I call it a rude awakening, which was I began to see how my faith was causing me mental health issues. Uh, initially, it was just mental health issues, and I was desperate to get better. But then as I started working on myself and working on healing and therapy, I started to realize like all this fear, guilt, and shame and sexual self-hatred and repression you know, this is coming from the Bible and my version of Christianity. And so that led to me questioning it more on an intellectual level, just that psychological experience, 
And so it, it took me a couple years, though, of trying to make it work because, you know, if there's something that's going on that's wrong, it, it couldn't be something wrong with the religion. It has to be something wrong with you. You don't have enough faith. You're not trying hard enough. You know, you're you're in sin or God has decided to withdraw his presence from you in the dark night of the soul. You know, I'm sure you've heard all of that before. Oh, yeah. So it's always your fault because it's a victim-blaming type mentality and a victimizing mentality. So I ended up trying harder and trying out more progressive, more open versions of Christianity. Uh, and so I just happened to get a, a job in a Presbyterian church on my way out because I couldn't go be a missionary to India anymore. That career track kind of got ruined a little bit. And and then I worked on my religious trauma recovery and what kind of trauma i mean go as deep as you want what were you feeling so this is also what i work with with clients now i have a master of counseling and i work uh as a as a coach uh, helping people heal from religious trauma and uh and i use something called internal family systems it's a therapeutic modality super cool uh but but as far as the ways in which it impacted me uh, they were they were vast. I would say, you know, I've always had tendencies towards anxiety spectrum issues, and those were just amplified to the maximum by Christianity. By I mean, I remember when I was five years old watching Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. Have you seen that play? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah there, I think there may be right? a, maybe even a movie version of it, oh, and boy. it's total fear porn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so so I remember watching that play and hearing I could die at any moment and end up in hell, you know, all the time is just being reinforced every Sunday. This the most unimaginably horrible fear and experience that you could possibly imagine is hell. Right. I mean, it's literally the maximized ideological version of fear uh, amplified to the max infinity. And I would say the most evil, sadistic idea that's possible as well. <laughs> so we were being taught that as kids, you know, no big deal. And I remember as a five year old uh, sitting in my bed, uh, just uh, obsessively, compulsively praying the sinner's prayer and being terrified that I might fall asleep and lose consciousness and end up in hell because I hadn't confessed some sin. And, you know, so then I got insomnia out of that and developed a kind of a, a little bit of OCD around religious fear and, and confession of sin and around uh, religious rituals that are prescribed by the system to stave off this anxiety that they create. And so you have an obsessive compulsive type, addictive type cycle that's created there as well. But really the fear and and the shame, I mean, from teachings like original sin, you know, that, that you're basically evil, that you can't trust yourself, you can't trust your intuition, your heart, uh, that you're wicked and depraved. It's, it's like a, a constant beatdown, a, a psychological beatdown. It's like the and, church uh, told you you were sick and then said, by the way, we're selling the cure. Exactly. Um, you know, I don't struggle with OCD, but I, in my own life, remember as a young person, I was always whispering the prayer of forgiveness under my breath. Is it yep. that kind of thing? Dear Lord, please cleanse me. I'm sorry yeah. I had a wicked thought kind of thing. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and you know, hell trauma is a big thing. It's a big thing that people deal with, especially when they're in the process of leaving, but often for years or even decades after they've left fundamentalism, because it's such a root level fear. And, and I mean, people will have flashbacks uh, or, or these kind of images of burning in hell or these nightmares and, and a, a disabling level of, of panic sometimes. There's the guilt and the shame. There's a I mean, it, it's a total identity system. The, the doctrine, indoctrination is total. It claims allegiance in every single area of life, your community, your thought life, your emotional life, your sexuality, your career. It really aims to be a very, very total level of commitment and I would say control. So to that extent, people often lose their identities or, or there's a kind of a religious ego that's developed, you know. So often when people leave or, when, or, or just people that I work with or including myself, there's an experience of I don't even know who I am anymore because there was no me apart from this religious identity thing. So I feel like I have to start all over and find myself again. You just used the word total. And I would encourage everybody in this audience to Google totalism. There's an interesting concept that happens. What cults do is they erase the self. They erase the identity of individuals so that your identity becomes the group. You think that's a fair definition of cults or even fundamentalist religions? Die to self, live for him, her, or it. Yeah. And, you know, you can even call it like a, a spiritual possession if we want to get spooky with it. It's like the Holy Spirit is is like demonically possessing you or something. You know, your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit and, and your your sexuality is not your own. Your Your mind is not your own. God's always policing your thoughts and searching you for any unclean or un unworthy way it's it's like a like a surveillance kind of thing that we internalize uh, so so i i would say it's 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 funny it's very it's very dark really it's very dark in fact it's in some ways even diabolical and i i have an article i've written on that called is evangelical christianity's god the devil uh, where it's kind of like what we might expect a devilish being to be if one were to exist is kind of what I would say we see in a lot of ways with uh, this this fundamentalist version of God. If you read the Bible, who did the most damage? Like body <laughs> count, cities destroyed, torture enacted, who did the human sacrifice time and again? It's like, well, Actually, Satan was just the guy who said he's not going to live under tyranny. <laughs> he he's the original critical thinker. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's controversial. If I was a devout Christian and I'd heard you or me even say that, I'd, I'd have flipped out. Oh, my God, I can't believe somebody just said that Satan might have been the good guy in the story, you know, kind of deal. Can I ask you this? And by the way, if you are still with me, you are seeing an example of two people who disagree on spiritual matters who align in terms of our values and who are fighting to help protect people from damaging fundamentalism. You and I, Andrew, are proof that it can be done, right? <laughs> in your counseling, do uh, you integrate the spirits? I don't know how else to say it, brother. I mean, does it become a spiritual practice for you? So, I mean, we probably disagree on... on sort of like ontology and epistemology in certain ways. 
uh, like what can be said about some of these experiences and, and whether they correspond to objective realities outside of the mind. But I'd say we probably, or, or I, I would guess that we don't disagree that, you know, people do have uh, some experiences that are hard to explain that can be healing and that can be useful. And that's very uh, carefully worded, Andrew. <laughs> I can, you are, and I, I'm, I understand it. But if we're talking about like the word experiential or experience, personal experience, does that become problematic because everybody's subjective brain produces stories of different experiences that exist beyond scientific testing? I mean, how do you approach, you know, if someone says, well, I experienced this, do you receive that and say, well, it's real or it was real for you? What's your approach as a counselor? Yeah, I, I mean, so as as someone, you know, who's who's holding that kind of a space, um, I do my best to not impose my own belief system on someone else. So I'm very careful about that. You know, I work with atheists. I work with Christians. I work with people everywhere on the spectrum. And you so kind of meet I, them where they are. Kind I, yeah, of thing. exactly. And, okay. and I try to work within that worldview, you know, so I'm not going to bring in any kind of a spiritual anything, if someone says I'm a humanist secularist, so like, great, so let's work with that, like, you know, creating your own sense of meaning and and, and within that worldview and humanism. But I, honestly, a lot, usually it's people bringing them to me and knowing that I'm someone who talks about these kinds of experiences. Uh, so, so a lot of people who are working actively with psychedelics, for instance, will, you know, talk about that. And, and I do urge caution, like, I don't think we should just take every experience literally and that we, that the mind thinks symbolically. And, uh, so it's important to really ground experiences. So if somebody walks in and they're like, well, their experience has been informed by a debunked religious model, let's call it, in this case, Scientology. Like we know it was uh -huh. penned by a corrupt sci-fi writer and Scientology is a high control cult with corrupt tentacles throughout the world, et cetera. Someone comes in and they are still operating from that model. And you as a counselor, if you meet them where they are, does that ever include challenging or even suggesting that the cult model, the belief that they hold dear where they are might be part of the problem. Yeah. So, um, you know, I haven't really, well, I, I, let me think here. No, I, I mean, I'm very vocal about where, you know, my position is and it's all out there. Uh, in terms of my writings and, and, and different things that I've spoken on. Uh, so people know that I'm working with religious trauma and have a perspective on that. So I've had some people who are fundamentalist Christians want to work with that. And, and like what I tend to do is is really kind of work within their framework. And if there's something that's problematic, I will kind of see if there's a space they can occupy that's somewhere within their framework where they can have a little more leeway with that. Okay, well, I'm not trying to 
be that guy, but I'm going to be that guy. You and Go I ahead. just spent 10 minutes talking about fundamentalism and the harm uh-huh. it does. It does harm, right? Absolutely. Uh, you, I think you said diabolical. Somebody walks mm-hmm. into your counseling session and they hold to a diabolical model. Right. Which likely is harming them. Absolutely. So you, in the cause of helping them to be released from these maladaptive ideas, uh-huh. do you ever go in and say, this is harming you? You know, I, I so I, I'm thinking in my frame of reference, I've worked with some Christians who are kind of like deconstructing but wanting to still be Christians. And so I will say, I will like suggest things like, you know, there are multiple interpretations of the Bible and it, it, it has, you know, different ideas that might contradict each other. And some Christians believe that. But I really kind of, I'm, I'm always curious about what they can be receptive to, you know, and in a therapeutic relationship, trust is everything. So, so to keep them from being attacked, it's more of a Socratic yeah, thing. Like, like it's really important that you're not coming off as someone who's aggressive or threatening to something that they hold dear because then they won't trust you. Then their protective mechanisms will shut you out. Well, I'm not suggesting you would pound them over the head and say, this is the stupidest and most harmful stuff I've ever heard. Yeah. Well, why do, would you believe yeah. it? Yeah. Well, you, you know, would instead, it, though. I might. I, I might if if it's something that's like really really clear and really abusive. I, you know, I have when people have talked about their ideas about hell. So I'm not, you know, I will take a stand on certain things. But I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm very careful, and for me, that trust really is everything in in a therapeutic setting. And it's kind of like even if you say something that's right. And if it turns them off, then what's the point in that setting? We've talked a lot about the psychology of belief and how the amygdala fires up when people have a belief linked to identity and someone Uh challenges or attacks that. And then, you know, not only do they not bend, but they double down. And and I understand that. And I also understand the utility of asking questions or encouraging curiosity. You know, this is something that you might explore the morality of or the history Mm -hmm. of or the validity Mm -hmm. of. I mean, I I get that. Yeah, no, no. So so I do ask some of those kinds of questions. I guess I, I have yet to have someone in my practice who's like a staunch uh, fundamentalist and is like, I, I think I probably repel those clients. Well, yeah, it's a friendly audience, right? <laughs> if they know you, if they've done the background on you, they kind of know your, your thing. Yeah. I mean, I get that. Yeah. You've talked about psychedelics quite a bit. Can we talk about uh, psychedelics? Yeah, Are you, you want to talk about psychedelics? I've never done them. I'm interested in them. Uh-huh. So what does that do for you? Oh, uh, well, you know, the the time that we're in is being called by psychedelic enthusiasts the psychedelic renaissance because there's so much research happening in these realms that had not been happening for decades because of the war on drugs. So now that that's really, really been revved up and right now both psilocybin, psilocybin uh, comes from mushrooms and MDMA are in phase three clinical trials in the U.S. for treatment of major depressive disorder for mushrooms and for treatment-resistant PTSD for the MDMA. 
And they're being researched for a whole host of mental health issues and also for treating drug addiction. There's just a huge range of potential benefit for these medicines. Well, I mean, talk to me over coffee, though. I mean, you take, I don't know, a shroom. And good for anybody who does psychedelics. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. I, I can see the appeal if you wanted to go and, and have that sort of euphoric, ethereal, out-of-body kind of a dream, fever dream, or whatever you want to call it. I mean, yeah. you want to feel like you're flying or that, you know, there's a kaleidoscope of color that's dancing around you or whatever. I mean, I mean whatever. I think that's amazing. What happens with you? I mean, you. I'm not trying to peer in your windows, but you take yeah. a shroom. What happens to you? Yeah. So my preferred way to work with a psychedelic is in a room lying down with eye shades on and with my eyes closed and with someone there to support me, which is what I recommend and what therapeutic protocol is. And, and you know, most kind of traditional indigenous or shamanic context, they have some kind of structure and ceremony to create a container for the experience that supports it. So for me, that's what I would do. And there are several stages to the journey, usually. I mean, and there is there are such a wide range of experiences you can have. But typically, the psychedelic will take you to a, a kind of an autobiographical phase of the journey where if you come in with some kind of problem you want to work on, let's say depression, Often the psychedelic will start showing you memories of things where that kind of were maybe traumatic experiences or or where you took on certain beliefs. And it's like this unfolding healing process that kind of happens or is somehow facilitated. There's something that happens there that often people will will see and that I've experienced like the epigenesis of a certain problem. And often with that experience of witnessing how, you know, I came to take on this thing, there will be some kind of experience of, uh, of healing, uh, like a new narrative or a new sense of meaning in its place that comes out of it, like a, a kind of a replacement, often a cathartic experience, like a, a feeling of bliss or unconditional love or, or, or a kind of rapturous type experience that can often be the opposite of the negative thing. So that's part of it. And then there can just be these kind of mind-blowing, what people might call mystical experiences, like a sense of, uh, of unity or, or, or oneness or expansion. So there are a lot of different kinds of experiences. But I've had the, I mean, like one experience I had, I can tell you about, which was, uh, you could say, pretty trippy. I was working with this is a psychedelic cactus called San Pedro or Wachuma. And I was about to give a talk about sexuality and religious trauma. And so as I took this, I felt like I experienced myself in a woman's body with a woman's organs in sexual intercourse, but as a woman. And then it kind of, this visionary experience expanded. And then I saw sort of like a, a broader scope of, of animals mating. And then I saw like uh, sort of galaxies like expanding and contracting. And, and, and so kind of like this idea that there's like sexuality is a, is a, is a kind of a, a, a cosmic type thing, part of the nature process. And so, so an experience like that, you know, that 
<laughs> was, no, no, no. was quite foreign to me. Okay, so I'm watching here, and I'm I have this model in my mind of someone. Let's say somebody has gone through tremendous grief after they lost their mother. All right, their mother mm-hmm. died prematurely, and they were devastated. And they go to sleep thinking about their mother, and then they have a dream, a dream where they are reunited and they spend time and you know uh, have a meaningful moment and have healing words, comforting words. And then this person wakes up. I can see how having that dream would comfort, would help to balm the emotions of somebody going through trauma. That would be fair. That'd be a fair version of what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. So- How would you differentiate someone who dreamed, who's sort of the blender of the brain, conjured up memories and created organically from within created scenarios where they met their mother? How would you differentiate between that and somebody who had gone on a an actual spiritual journey to another plane and spoken to their actual mother? So I'll tell you that people often think that that's happening, whether that's happening or not, or in any given circumstance, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, well, there lies my problem. If I hear someone tell me an emphatic story and they uh-huh. know it because they know it and they feel it because yeah. they felt it, I have no way of knowing that this isn't sure. just, I mean, it's like psychedelics. Sure. If you go in and goose the chemicals in your brain, uh-huh. And then you take a cosmic trip. How do you know that you're not just goosing the chemicals in your brain? Well, you know, I mean, I, I would say some of it has to do with the nature of the experience and the content that's experienced is so organized and foreign and vivid. Not to say it's always this way, but I think a lot of people and myself included start to wonder like, where is all this stuff coming from? And like, these are not things that I've been exposed to or experienced before and that seem to be meaningful and and seem to be experiences about the universe and the nature of reality and, and like uh, on just all of these things are happening in these states and why are they happening and what does that mean? So it it seems to me in the very least, that there's some kind of organized experience that it's hard for me to explain it through a a kind of a hallucination model alone, which is to say that this is sort of like your brain on drugs is is creating these dreamlike or or somehow fabricated or entirely fabricated experiences because of the level of coherence and meaning and vividness. And it's almost like another sense is being activated, you know, like you're seeing with your, uh, like another set of eyes. Oh shit. I I thought you were going to say third eye. No, no, no. I was going to have to end the call. No, I'm just kidding. That would be the, (laughs) that would be it. That's the line. I'm sorry. I interrupted your thought. I interrupted your thought. That's my fault. Get out of here. But but I'm saying that level of kind of coherence, it just seems like there's something else going on, you know, so you can argue with me on what that is. And I think that's what people are trying to do right now. And there's a lot of literature about psychedelics and a lot of people who have written better things than I'm going to say (laughs) uh, about these subjects. I guess I would probably, the, I I think one who is really good is uh, Stanislav Grof. Okay. Stanislav G-R-O-F. 
uh, is one of the big guys in the the psychedelic movement who's done a lot of research analyzing for decades, analyzing people's experiences and writing books about the different kinds of realms of experience uh, within psychedelic journeys and uh, as a sort of mapping out the topography of the domain of the psychedelic experience. And what happens too is is you'll start people will have these experiences of what Carl Jung called archetypes, which are like uh, certain kinds of images or symbols or seeing things that appear to be deities. And he made sense of that by positing a collective unconscious, by saying like, well, it seems like people are having experiences of things that they've never seen and that are too clear and coherent to be just generated as like a hallucination in a, in a kind of random way maybe these are things that are in our collective evolutionary memory that we've inherited and that we sort of experience in that way. So he tried to keep it more within a humanistic way in that way, although he also got involved in well, that. Well, I mean, I, that, stuff. I mean, I could, if I was being that guy, and I will be someone who says, all right, so some a species with similarly evolved brains happen to see specific kinds of things that, you know, occasionally correlates and they happen to have sharp edges, right? They're clear and they're colorful and they seem so real. Mm-hmm. But, you know, how would someone looking for proof approach that? And I think that's one of the challenges that somebody like me has is that, you know, I'm, I really am all about does it exist and is it real? Oh, yeah. And then, you know, even if we're not reaching out and touching the outer membrane of the cosmos, you know, even if I'm literally not talking to grandma uh-huh. or whatever, if there is a way to activate the brain in a psychedelic way, where uh-huh. the chemical reactions and the experiential outcomes help us bring us joy and happiness and balance or correct an imbalance. I don't have a problem with that. That's fair, right? Totally. And I, I mean, I think that's probably what we could agree on and what I think people across the spectrum could agree on and come together on. I've got more questions. He may have more questions. I'll continue with my special guest, mysticist Andrew Jasko, next. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Happy New Year, my friends, and thanks for your support on Patreon. If you like the show early and commercial-free, become a patron, patreon.com slash Seth Andrews. Speaking here with Andrew Jasko. He is a mysticist and runs the website lifeafterdogma.org. Do you think that coming out of, I don't mean this at all, I'm not trying to come after you, but I'm interested uh-huh. in somebody who, you and I share a background in the Pentecostal church. Right? Oh, the coming out of that influences uh, my, an, my... Right, an experiential you know, culture, right? Does that yeah. inform? Because I think well, a lot, one of the great explanations for the benefit, and I'll use the word benefit, that some religious models do bring is they give people a sense of structure. People respond positively to ritual, usually positively to ritual. It often alleviates the fear of death. It also activates, in some ways, a sense of awe and wonder Mm -hmm. and helps, perhaps in some way, for them to make sense of the nonsensical. I mean, there's I get it. I understand why many of these models exist, and I'm interested. It was there a spiritualist as the Pentecostal who became the spiritualist as— Well, so, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, that's one way you could interpret me and my experience and a possible explanation for it that I'm also aware of. <laughs> but uh, but uh, so so I'll say, did you see at the at the conference? Did you see any of the talks on the near death experiences? I think I saw one. We've done uh-huh. shows about NDEs. Yeah, someone yeah, had yeah. cited a study about how um, people had died and then they came back and accurately reported specific things uh-huh. that they could not have known. And I I went back and I started to dig into the claims. And I found them problematic. There have been peer-reviewed studies where people have said, all right, well, look, we took these symbols and we turned them upside down so only someone floating above would have seen them. Or we asked them about specifics that they otherwise should have known. I'm not sure I'm ready to marry myself to that data. Yeah, and that's fair. That's fair. There are quite a number of studies on that. But even listening to the the kinds of experiences that people might have on that, I think, is helpful to appreciate at least where they're coming from, even if you don't adhere. What, what I'll say is this, okay, like a common feature of the psychedelic experience is also what people might call past life memories uh, that often happens is like, uh, and again, you could argue that this is influenced by belief or that it's just a way that the mind kind of explains this thing. And uh, But it's something that does happen that people, as they're seeing the epigenesis of this trauma, they'll come, they'll see themselves or experience themselves in some other life, some other body and see that as being a root. And then you have these whole frameworks, uh, philosophy and religion that kind of integrate that. And that, uh, you know, in in Hindu and Buddhist thought, especially that will uh, have a lot of depth of insight and study and inquiry into what people will call transpersonal experiences or, or kind of these mystical type experiences and, and the phenomenological content of them, what's going on experientially in them. So, what I'll say is that when I became an atheist, I became an atheist after I left Christianity and was adamantly an atheist for several years. And I'm still pretty skeptical about a lot of things. But 
it wasn't until working with psychedelics, I'd say for about two years in intentional ways and in, in ceremonies that I just started to have experiences that I wasn't able to make sense of other ways, except through more of a more of these kinds of shamanic type and Eastern type perspectives that really map out these domains and, and make more room for them. But what I'd say is, in the very least, what I've learned from psychedelics is that I was shocked. I mean, I, I actually had never had a mystical experience as a Pentecostal. And part of the reason why I left was because I was like, this is all BS, you know, this is all emotional hype. I could never tell whether it was, is this God or is this just a voice in my head, you know, my internalization of God and the emotional preaching. And what I came to experience was of a different nature entirely. And so what I learned is that a lot of religious type experiences are things that we can actually have and in reproducibly. And again, like what we, you make of those and your paradigm and perspective of that is, is one thing. You can see how a guy like me would, I well, mean, especially I see, given my background. I mean, if, I can see it. And, and I was that way myself. If too. I put 10 of you in a room uh -huh. and I ask you to nail down any one of these terms, whether it's spiritual or past uh -huh. lives or other planes or other dimensions or whatever, I would get potentially 10 different answers and I wouldn't be able to, like, how do we carve the proof of these things out of everybody's skull and put it in a testable environment? And I think that's one of the challenges. Well, right. It is one of the challenges. And I think one of the challenges too is that what we're talking about is matters of consciousness and perception. And the only way to really test that is to actually go into the experiences. So the, the, you know, the only kind of experience you could set up is one in which people are actually directly experiencing, having the experiences. But I mean, this speaks to the challenge, perception the challenge. versus reality, right? I perception versus real. So if yeah, I perceive yeah, but, it, but, if I see it, hear it, smell it, is that a perception or right, is it? But, but, but why, why is it so that it, it's so organized, so lucid, and that there are these cosmic type experiences happening where, where people seem to be having interactions with things outside of their own past experience or, or sort of like information coming at them. It doesn't seem to be, it, it doesn't seem that, to me, an, an idea that this is all just generated by the brain doesn't have explanatory power for what's happening in that experience. There's because of the 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 information and the and the things that are being experienced, there has to be a way of talking about these things. I think you and I are an example of that, and I can hear. I, I there are atheist spiritualists. They don't believe in a deity, but they do believe in. I don't know. It's a spiritual realm. They might right. believe in posthumous right. existence, and, and, and so and I can so, I can see so the like cultures for, though. For I can, instance, for I can, instance, uh, Buddhism. Uh, much of Buddhism is atheist. Or many Buddhists are atheists. Hell, if uh, I wasn't, if I was anything, I'd be a Buddhist. Right, but in their worldview, you know, they would often, and much of Buddhism, or probably most of it, would see these kinds of realms of consciousness as having 
some kind of more fundamental existence than, say, a philosophical materialist paradigm would say, which is that consciousness is a is an epiphenomenon that arises out of matter that's generated out of matter. Uh, the, the, for them, they would put kind of interiority as a more fundamental level, or or, or that there's a less of a fine line between experience and matter. And so they, they, a lot of them might say that uh, some of these realms have some kind of objective existence that's just outside the mind, that it's sort of like we're peering into something that's real, but it is always being influenced by our subjectivity at the same time. So it is immensely complex. Uh, it's but, but, conveniently but, vague. And well, I, mean, I have it, to say well, it, right? Well, well, I mean, well but, but, but the thing is, is like, it's also convenient to not have the experiences and then be skeptical of them. I, and look, I, no, no, no. I, and I don't want this to become really what it was never intended to be. What I'm trying to say, though, is for somebody who is waiting for a burden of proof to be met, uh-huh. which I think is important if we're going to go out and we're going to accept truth claims or fact claims, data based claims, then we're looking for the data. And I agree. Uh, and it's a little bit of it's actually it's a tremendous challenge whenever people are talking about these things that are the, I, I hate the word conveniently, but it's the only one that fits. They're conveniently unverifiable. And then I hear someone who comes in and says, well, science is not yet advanced enough to be able to uh-huh. measure it. But one day that becomes a little problematic, too. But I understand what you're saying. I, I understand that there is a commonality of experience that many people find is um, a correlation well, of some kind. Yes. And there is work going on in terms of verification, like this place called the Division of Perceptual Studies at Virginia, University of Virginia. There are people who are doing research into kind of the, these correlations between things that people will tend to experience and see in these kinds of altered states or, or what people will say are not in ordinary states of consciousness and things that happen in the objective outside world. So there is research going on. It's certainly not, you know, in the mainstream accepted paradigm, uh, but it does exist. Oh, I like that. I mean, I think it should be researched. That's a great idea. By the way, Altered States, terrific Ken Russell film from the 1980s, starring <laughs> William Hurt. Sorry. Uh, so if, look, let's, let's just have fun for a second. Like if if you were to, to suggest for a first timer, a noob uh-huh. like me, a rookie, a psychedelic. All right, Seth's going to take his first trip. Uh-huh. So I want to go in. I'm going to go into my office and make sure the dogs are asleep so they don't distract me. And I lower the lights and and whatever. Is there a substance? Would you say, all right, Seth's first time, give him this? I mean, I would say mushrooms. Is there a specific kind? Uh, it doesn't really matter. There's various different kinds of strains, but they're all, they all have psilocybin, which is the active psychedelic ingredient. So would so, I would I feel like I left my body? Would I fly? Probably not. I probably mean, not. You know, well, you, you would have to have higher doses in general. Oh, I'm in. To have a kind of out-of-body experience. dose me. I want to freaking fly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you want to go all the way, there's a, <laughs> there's a psychedelic called 5-MeO-DMT that leads to sort of the the classical non-dual experience or, or nirvanic type experience that's 
which, which is this this kind of state of of like total oneness or unity consciousness that people will say, you know, and what that is again, you know, you can argue, but no, but that sort I of can take you there. <laughs> In this crazy, divided, hateful world, that sounds attractive. Give me a few minutes of nirvana, of yeah. peace and calm and zen or whatever i mean even if it's just even if it's just the chemicals in my brain being goosed as as but, i like but to I mean, say I, i'll say this in two like you look at a guy like like paul stamets if people know of him he's this mushroom evangelist guy wait 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 uh, wait, wait wait hang on hang on mushroom evangelist mushroom evangelist check him out he's amazing he, okay he, he researches different kinds of mushrooms for purposes like mycoremediation or like mushrooms that will will eat plastic and you know work to heal the environment he has this big story about how his stuttering problem was resolved through magic mushrooms and he kind of sees himself as this emissary of mushrooms and the other thing about psychedelics is they tend to bring people into a a kind of a dialogue or a sense of communion with nature and so a lot of people suggest taking them in nature and, and they find that it can bring out environmentalist tendencies. Again, uh, people getting a sense of more of a unity with nature and having a lot of experiences of, of I'll, I'll just say you'd have to experience it, I get it. yourself at some point. Would, would um, it, I mean, the trip last an hour, a day, three days? Oh, Does it matter? No, no. Well, with mushrooms, it's six to eight hours. Uh, do you so ever do all, this as a group? Do you ever uh, do you ever do yeah, this as? Yeah, so 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 there are ceremonies. I you know I think that's the the uh, an ideal way. So depending on the medicine, mushrooms tends to be a more solo experience. Uh, but there are practitioners who are often trained by shamans in South America. You you know they have apprenticeships where they often require for a lot of shamans like nine ten years of working with these medicines and exploring these different states and then learning how to work with people in that tradition. And a lot of that just has to do with methodology and, and, uh, and learning how to help people navigate these kinds of experiences. So yeah, there's ayahuasca ceremonies, which is another big psychedelic. There's these different masculine-based cactus ceremonies. There's that 5-MeO-DMT, which is more like an hour uh, so there are there are a lot of different things. Like I'm there. I'm not going to wake up naked at the zoo or anything like that if I do one of these you know, trips. If you did, would that be the worst <laughs> thing? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That's when you know it's been a good a good run. It's been a good journey when you wake up naked. Yeah, at the but zoo. I mean, if you're going to do this kind of thing, I would I would definitely recommend doing it with a facilitator. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody who can lock the doors and make sure that you don't yeah, end up on TikTok. Yeah, that's the recommendation. Andrew Jasko, would I call you a, um, a shaman? But you, I mean, I, I, well, so I'm not comfortable with that because I don't meet the credentials because I know people who actually are shamans and, you know, they've done a lot of training. Let's just okay. put it that way. Well, I was thinking, how would I title that? Would it be the atheist and the shaman or the atheist and the spiritualist or, or actually, I, I, I almost want to name it uh, mushroom but, but, evangelist. That's my but, favorite part but, so but, far. But, but. <laughs> <laughs> Seth and another mushroom yeah. evangelist. Well, so so I will say this: like you could say it's it's kind of convenient to say it's unverifiable. Except what I'm saying is like it is in a certain way verifiable. 
and that there is research being done on this and in that we can reproduce these kinds of experiences and map them out and people have done that like some of the names that I've given you. And so people looking at some of these connections again with information that people seem to encounter in these types of experiences and even like a lot of like I said like Buddhist and Hindu type philosophy and not all of its religion a lot of its philosophy and experimentation they've made a lot of observations over time of people really dissecting these experiences and saying what do they mean do they suggest anything about reality do they not so it's kind of like an open invitation like saying you know well like we need more people to research this stuff and, and it's hard. It's hard by the nature of subjectivity. You and I line up that we should ask the questions and we should test the testable. And I think maybe where we diverge is our measuring stick for how an answer might be interpreted. But what I really take away is that when it comes to helping to free people from fundamentalism, and helping to you know reject these dogmas that divide rather than unite us and spread hate and bigotry instead of love and unity you know you and i you know we're brothers in this fight i think you and i stand shoulder to shoulder i would be proud to share a stage with you yeah and i think you know that's well. a great example of two people from tremendously different backgrounds and perspectives who do line up in terms of values and, you know, with these kinds of things, like I want to hold on to skepticism, but also curiosity and exploration. And so there's just an, an endless world of fascination and uh, a lot of unknowns, I think, in this in this field of the psychedelic and uh, what transpersonal is a term people use, research and experience. But yeah, I also have a lot of work that could be fun to dive into sometimes about like the a psychological breakdown of some of the the harmful doctrines on uh, a light, like I have an article called God the Fascist, analyzing fascism in the Bible. So yeah, there's a lot more down that rabbit hole too. Life after dogma.org. You realize if you posted like mysticism and that type. You you may get some what the hell are you talking about emails, and I you know I'm, that's not why I would send people <laughs> to totally. your website. But totally, just totally, prepare totally. yourself. Well, well, so so people know that people oh. know that that you're getting into the woo zone. Yeah, I'm just but, saying that's what we call yeah, it. That's what we out. call it. Yeah, and and I hoped also curiosity. Uh, you know, like I say, like I invite researchers into these domains, and if you can come up with. Uh, more meaningful, more useful explanations, then I'm all ears. And we'll call the Nobel Prize Committee and have them on alert. Yeah, right, We'll just please. have them totally ready. Uh, meanwhile, I'm going to head out to the grocery store, uh, to the mushroom section, see if I can find a sliced or whole. I'm not exactly sure. Andrew Jasko, I'll put your link in the description box. Been fun, man. And it's been, uh, you know, I think an enlightening conversation. It's it's different, different than any exchange I've had on the podcast so far, and and I'm glad for it. So thanks yeah, for coming. Thanks for yeah. talking to me. All right. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. For a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and T-shirts featuring The Thinking Atheist logo, links to atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions, log on to our website, thethinkingatheist.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.